0: You're listening to the Truth in Boots podcast. Join me as we search the Bible for truth about our God, for hope to encourage us through hard trials and struggles, and for answers for anyone who questions our faith. The truth of God's Word is not fragile, impractical, and only used on special occasions like a pair of stiletto heels. God's Word, like a pair of sturdy boots, is meant to be put to work daily and is designed to protect us and help us through the mud, streams, and rocks of life. Awe. It's a word that defines that wow feeling that you get sometimes. It's the acknowledgement of your own place when you compare it to someone or something else. So what is that awe-inspiring sight that pops first into your mind? Is it an athlete's performance, like you're at a a game, or maybe you went to the Olympics and you saw this phenomenal feat performed by someone really good at the sport. Or maybe your moment of awe was a work of art that you saw. Maybe you went to the Louvre and you've seen some really phenomenal world renowned pieces. But we can up the wow factor even a bit more. Um, what about if you're standing on a beach? I don't know if you've, it, the thought has ever struck you of how small you are when you look out at that ocean and the power of that ocean. Or maybe it's standing at the top of a mountain and you realize how big the mountain is And how big the world is and the universe is and just how insignificant you are compared to it. Or maybe you're underneath a blanket of stars. So it's not just how big the universe is, but also the beauty when you're looking at it. It's just captivating and awe-inspiring. My personal biggest moment of awe, of wow, was when I was standing on the rim of Crater Lake. I grew up in Oregon, um, but I haven't been to Crater Lake as often as a local should be. I mean, when it's only an hour and a half away, two hours away, you should probably go more than twice in your life. But I remember standing there the first time. We had this steep drive up the canyon, not the canyon, the, the Crater Rim, and we get to the top and there is this vast expanse of wilderness behind you and way below you and then you look the other direction and there is this what used to be a mountain this giant dent is the basically the best way i can think of describing it um a dent in what used to be a mountain. And it's full of water. And way out in the middle of that giant dent full of water, there's an island. A little island. And on that island, you see little dots. And it took me a few seconds to realize that those little dots on that tiny little island were full-grown evergreen trees. The majestic beauty of Crater Lake just floored me. It made me think wow, I am so puny compared to this site before me. I mean, what am I? That wow factor, that awe, is also the feeling that architects wanted you to get when you went into medieval churches. So the Gothic arches, you know, the flying buttresses and and the stained glass windows. You're supposed to walk into the church and feel so small and you're supposed to feel just wonder when you come in to worship. But it's not just awe that you're supposed to feel when you come before God's presence. It's so much more than that. Because you're coming before a holy God. The holy God of the universe. But what exactly is holiness? Well, the best way, I think, to describe it succinctly is that holiness is set apart. The English Bible uses various different words to translate from the Hebrew words, but some of them are holy, consecrated, separate, dedicated, sacred. The idea is that you're setting something apart from everything else so that it is so much higher um, than everything else so some illustrations from scriptures the perfect one the pro- probably the one that comes to your mind when you think of holy 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 Isaiah 6 1 through 5 in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said... Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A word about Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen: For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits an eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite heart and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is high and lifted up. He is set apart. If you were to stand before his throne like Isaiah was, I would not even to begin to describe, wonder wouldn't even begin to describe the feeling that you have. God is so high above us That all we can do is humble ourselves and say, woe is me when I compare myself to God. But holiness doesn't just describe God. It is who he is. It's not just another attribute. In the Hebrew culture, a name described someone. It wasn't just a word you think used to refer to someone to differentiate that person from someone else Um, I mean, I named my son Stephen because I liked the name it didn't have that much to do with the fact that he is going to be a martyr someday I hope not or that I hope he's going to be a leader in the church no, I I named him Stephen because I like the name but in the Hebrew culture it's more than that So like I just read in Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He is, his name is holy because he is high and lifted up. So it's not a, just a title. It is who God is. He is holy. He is set apart. He is awe-inspiring. Let me take you to Amos so you can see this even more. Um, in Amos 2, the scriptures say, The Lord has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take, away- take you away. And then a few chapters later in Amos 6.8, the scriptures say, The Lord has sworn by Himself. So, those two verses within the same context are basically saying holiness is who God is. Or what about Psalm 99.3? Let him praise your great and glorious name. Holy is he. Or Leviticus 19.2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay, so holiness means set apart, much higher than everything else. It is who God is. It's not just another attribute. But holiness is also so much more because it is who God is. That means everything else is set apart about him. Let me show you this in Isaiah forty twenty two. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. You can't compare God to anyone because he is set apart, because he is all-powerful. There is no one else in the universe that even comes close to his power. Because he is holy, he is set apart in his power. Because he is holy, he is set apart in his perfect love. No one can love like God. His love defies understanding because he is holy. He is set apart in everything he knows. He is all knowing. There is nothing that God does not know. And because he is holy, he is set apart in being perfectly righteous. Isaiah five says, man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Yes, holiness is who God is. It does mean being sinless, but it's so much more. It is basically all-encompassing of who the essence of God is. So I mentioned righteousness. I mentioned sinlessness, What exactly is sin? Well, if you look up a definition, a biblical definition would be missing the mark, i.e. you're shooting an arrow and it misses the target, the, the bullseye in the center. So what is God's target then? Well, it's the Ten Commandments. It's his law in Exodus 20. And then Christ summarizes all of that into just two commandments in Matthew 22. He says, all commandments can be summarized into love God and love your neighbor with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with all of your strength. You're supposed to love God and everyone else with everything you have, you are. So you can see it's pretty easy to miss the mark. I mean, we all are Selfish. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. We are selfish creatures. Um, So there's no question about whether or not we love someone else more than ourselves, whether we love God more than ourselves. We fail to meet God's standard. I like the way Tozer puts this. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. So to be anything less than God's complete love is to fail to miss the mark. I'm going to take a side note here. I'm not sure if you've ever heard someone say that sin is actually only a New Testament concept. It boggles my mind how someone can say that because as you can see from all the verses I've just been reading from the Old Testament, holiness has been taught throughout the Old Testament. But if you need some examples of the specific uses of sin, just go look it up in a concordance. I mean, it starts very early in the book of Genesis. You have Genesis three, where Adam and Eve failed to obey God's command. Yes, sin isn't quite used there. They disobeyed. But if you want to see specific usage of the word sin, then just go to Cain and Abel, Um, go to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, he's going to destroy them. Or what about Joseph? The whole reason he did not sleep with Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39 was he said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Or what about Exodus 23? They shall not dwell in your land, speaking of these people that Israel is supposed to destroy, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, you will they will surely be a snare to you. So, sin is not just a New Testament concept. All throughout the um, Old Testament, God is warning his people to turn away from the sin, to be holy, to be separate, to dedicate themselves to God and separate themselves from the worship in the rest of the world. So, does holiness mean sinless? Well, not exactly. Exactly. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin. He made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is righteousness to be without sin. So therefore, we have to have Christ's righteousness cleanse us and take away our sin so that we can be holy in front of god holiness definitely includes sinlessness because god is set apart in every way from us including his perfect righteousness but it's just more than being sinless god is in fact set apart from sin look at leviticus 16 in the day of atonement when Aaron or whoever the high priest was had to atone for the sins of Israel once a year, that was the only day in the year that only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested and the presence of God was. You had the other ordained priests going into the holy place to to sprinkle blood, to offer incense. But the Holy of Holies, no one was allowed to enter. The high priest, once a year, had to make a sacrifice for his own sin, cleanse himself from his own sin via the sacrifice. Let me correct that. Cover his own sin via the sacrifice. And only then was he allowed to go directly to the Holy of Holies without anyone else being in the tabernacle. And sprinkle blood and offer sacrifice and then leave. And a little culture side note. I had um, a Jew tell me that, in fact, the Israelites would tie a cord around the ankle of the high priest so that if he died in the Holy of Holies, they wouldn't have to go in to get them, to get the guy. Because, I mean... If the high priest who just atoned for the sins of the people of Israel died and people else are trying to go in there, I mean, they're not cleansed. So how are you going to get the guy out? So they tie a cord around his ankle. So if the guys, the bells stop jangling in there, that's why you have bells on the bottom of his robe. If they stop, stop jangling, they'd hear that. And then they could just yank the guy out. So that is how... Separate God is from sin. I mean, one person only was allowed to enter after he himself had been covered by the blood of an animal. And God being separate from sin is shown also in Ezekiel 36. I mean, God had to pour out his wrath upon the Israelites for the blood that they had shed in the land, in verse 18, because the idols with which they defiled it So God scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed justly because God had to judge their sin and be separate from them. But God didn't stop there because the people of these lands are saying, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. They profaned his holy name. So in verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of the Lord had profaned among the nations to which they had come. So God then chooses to vindicate them and restore them to the land of Israel, gather them all up. And in verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols I cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." So because God is separate from sin, he could no longer have these people doing this terrible sin in his presence, in his holy land, in his very temple. He had nations come in and judge them. They were sent out of the land, separated from God. But then because of God's holy name, he chose to restore the Israelites after they repented. And then he promised to them, I will send my own Holy Spirit to you to dwell within your hearts so that you can walk in my statutes, so that you can obey my rules. So that's a, that's a beautiful promise for us as Christians. God here is telling the Israelites, Someday I'm going to send my spirit so that you can obey my commands. The, like I said in the last podcast, you can't do it by yourself. The Holy Spirit, His power is the one who enables you to be obedient to God. So last picture of God being separate from sin. I think it is clearly seen. The most clearly seen at the cross in Matthew 27, God essentially had to turn his back on his own son because of all of the sin that was put on him. As second Corinthians 521 says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46 say, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father could not look on God the Son because Christ was bearing on himself on the cross every sin that you and I have ever committed God had God the Father had to be separate he had to separate himself because he is holy so let's put this truth into boots the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer if you want a awesome study. Go to the book of Isaiah and just look at the holiness of God and how it's manifested in so many different ways. I mean, there's a title, the Holy One of Israel. There's God's holiness being shown through his other attributes, his set-apartness being shown through his other attributes. But look at the title that Isaiah forty one fourteen says, "'Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you,' declares the Lord." Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. So why should Israel not fear? Because the holy one, the one that is set apart, the one that includes perfect righteousness and his attributes and his essence, he is the redeemer. And then Simon Peter in John six says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter there is saying, yes, Christ, I know you are our Redeemer. You are the Holy One of God that Isaiah was promising. Colossians 1.21-22 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you were sinful. You were completely corrupt. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is perfect. He is completely set apart in his righteousness so that he can give us his righteousness and cleanse us. You have no reason to fear death or hell because God is perfect. And the Holy One of Israel is who is saving you. He has offered you his perfect righteousness as a free gift because of his set apart, his holy love. So secondly, the second practical, the way we can take this truth and put it into boots. God expects us to be set apart. Remember, God doesn't change, so his standard doesn't change, and he still expects us to be set apart for him. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or what about Ephesians 1.4? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and and blameless before him. First Thessalonians 4, 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, As obedient children be not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God's standard has not changed. But like he said in Ezekiel, you have no way to be holy in and of yourselves, which is why he gave us the spirit, his own spirit to live within us so that we can be holy, so that we can be set apart in our actions. Okay, that's a theology, but let's get practical. Um, your time, your energy, your money are not yours. They're all to be set apart, to be dedicated to God. He bought you. You were bought with a price. You are His. So don't live for yourself. Live for Him. It's not being, quote unquote, responsible or adulting. It's about choosing to live your life set apart, dedicated, wholly to God. So this right here was really convicting to me. I'm going to be transparent. I realized, you know, I don't spend each day thinking, how can I live today for Christ? It is, okay, what do I need to do today to meet my responsibilities? It's it's about me still. My responsibilities. What do I need to do? It's It's... I need to figure out how to mesh my life and God together. A perfect illustration of this is when I used to work full-time, I would come home from work and just be so exhausted. Well, actually, I still am with a kid running around the house. So even now, you know, the day's done, dinner's over, I just want to veg. I mean, I've worked all day and... The thought that comes to my mind is, okay, how do I want to spend my evening to relax? Well, that's not a bad thing to sit there and quote-unquote veg. But really, I should be thinking instead, how can I use my evening that would be honoring to God? So instantly, the idea of watching a movie that I've seen five times within the last year probably is not going to be honoring to god yes guilty been there done that i have some movies that i love watching over and over and over and over again but really is that using my time wisely is that going to be making myself holy and set apart to god now i'm not saying don't ever watch a movie I'm saying there's probably something else I could do with my time. Like, I all the time complain I don't have enough time to read the books I want to read. I mean, both fiction and non-fiction. I have a huge shelf of um, devotional books of, um, like, I have a few more Tozer books I've not read. But I also have this huge shelf of books that I got when I graduated from high school. um, Philosophy and classic literature that I just haven't, quote-unquote, had the time to read yet. It's because I've been choosing to waste my time watching this same movie for the fifth time this year. So, what are you choosing with your money, your time, your energy each day that should actually be set apart to God instead of consumed upon your own lusts? Okay, Okay. last thing for the Truth and Boots section. Do you have a proper view of yourself? Now, this podcast is working through an understanding of a correct picture of who God is, his set-apartness, how high above he is from us, his ultimate holiness. But to truly see how much more holy, how much more set-apart, high, lifted-up God is from us, we need a correct view of ourselves. So I have an exercise for you. And I'm going to do it too. I did this once in high school and it was eye-opening. I want you to write out or type out, whatever, make a list, 50 specific sins that you have committed. Now I say specific for a reason because you don't just start listing, okay, I've lied, I've cheated, I've been selfish. No, that's going to be a short list. I want you to fully see in detail the sins you commit. So some of my examples, Um, I am selfish when I choose to be lazy and not cook dinner so I can have more time to spend, you know, vegging on Netflix or reading uh, another book. Or how about I am self-centered when I'm having a conversation with a friend and they keep asking me about how my life is going, but I neglect to ask them how their life is going. Or what about me being proud and self-righteous when I'm on Facebook and see the comments of people out there living in fear, and I think, oh, (laughs) that's a good thing. I don't have that mindset. So those are some specifics. Um, One that someone mentioned in high school that I have never (laughs) been able to do again. When the toilet paper roll runs out, do you go and get another toilet paper roll or do you leave the empty cardboard tube on there? (laughs) Let that stick in your mind and I guarantee you, (laughs) you will never, like me, be selfish in that way again. So it's going to take you a bit to write this list. You won't be able to do it in one sitting. I promise you. You'll be able to do like maybe 10 to 20 really fast and then you'll hit a brick wall and you're going to have to come back to it and maybe write down a few more, but then eventually you'll get into a groove and be able to just list them off quickly. Then you'll see yourself as God sees you, apart from the righteousness of Christ. And then once we see ourselves as God sees us, we'll be able to understand what Isaiah felt when he saw God on his throne, high and lifted up. And then we'll say, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And then once we are humble and contrite and see ourselves properly, we can truly then dwell with God. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite.